0: Before we get into the text, I wanted to uh, share something else. As we uh, talk about worship, I I just have been so appreciative of your responsiveness to be able to try, in whatever way possible, to be able to be here as we begin the service with a call to worship. It's not only beneficial for those of you that have kids, young people, and the things that they're involved in, uh, as they come in the door and the people working with them are ready to receive them, right away and with all the things that they're trying to do I actually heard this week about one of our uh, younger boys in the church who said to us, mom just this week I so love my church he, I love my church he said and that quote was his <laughs> uh, and so there's some really cool things happening us being able to be here on, on time helps that to be able to take place too and I just say, I, so, I'm so grateful to be able to walk in here, just as things begin, and to see so many of you that are here and, and ready to go for that. And so thank you for that. But it's also part of a grand plan, too. And let me just share, in the midst of us, still in the process of discerning what is, where is God leading us in regards to what we do with our two different worship services, you know, and whether there's a difference in them. Keep praying for that. There's another part of it. You know, we sang this song at the end of it, and Daniel was leading us in this statement of where we say, you know, just, I give all of my life to him. Wasn't that a cool moment? You know what I wanted then? I want to get up and preach right then. I mean, God does use worship and music that way to just really prepare hearts for worship, right? And who wouldn't want to just say, okay, you guys, let's open God's word now and let's get into it. And we'd actually like to get to that point. And so as we continue to build the discipline of being here right away, that wonderful story about what was happening in Nepal and the other things about what it means for us to be a community together, we can cover them right at the get-go of the service and launch into worship. This is our desire to be able to do that and then be able to just walk into, this is the word of the Lord and for us to learn from it too. So that's our hope. That's our, our plan along the way. So I just want to say, Thank you for the discipline that uh, you're embracing in that regard, and we just trust it will lead us forward. To as we as we um, uh, continue to know how to follow Jesus best in this place. So, can we pray and uh, let's get started? Lord, we thank you so much for your word. This this ancient book that is so true today, Lord, uh, that you are that real and that powerful. There is power in the name of the Lord. We just saying that. There's power in this book as well too and there's power in your holy spirit work in our hearts and our minds and we pray lord that you would do that lord even in the midst of this this really hard text that we're looking at this morning god i pray particularly that you would speak your word that um, even the things that i say wouldn't be a beat down or discouragement because we know that's not what you want lord And so, Lord, I pray that we'd be able to hear what you have to say, not as a harsh beat down, because that's not your intention, but as an invitation to trust you and to seek you and to follow you more, and to find the joy that you intend there, Lord. So use your word and use mine. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, it started with that uh, slogan, a penny saved is a penny earned. Benjamin Franklin said it, right? And I don't know a lot about Benjamin Franklin, but I know there's this um, bronze, full, uh, life-size statue of Benjamin Franklin actually occupying the bench I'd like to sit on outside of a coffee house on the west end of the plaza. There he is, Benjamin Franklin, right there, larger than life. So he must have been a pretty big deal. And he said, a penny saved is a penny earned. And I don't know exactly what that means, but I I know that my parents taught me early on that saving is a virtue. You know, I would mow a lawn and my folks would say to me, okay, there's 10% of it and that belongs to God. It all does, but that's kind of the way they explained it. There's that 10% and, and, uh, you know, pull that out and give that to God. And then there's 10%, and you pull that out, and you put that in your savings account or your penny, uh, piggy bank or whatever it is, because it's important to save, and then you can do whatever you want to with the rest of it. That's, that's the way I, I learned things. And then I, I grew up and became a young adult, and I learned about the miracle of compounding interest and discovered it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> and uh, saving is what leads to that. And then we get to a text like this, and we ask the question, Is God really against saving? I mean, it almost feels that way, doesn't it? As you read the text, it seems like, God's upset with us if we save. Is that what it means? Actually, in this text, it's not that God is against saving. We learn here that God is actually against wasting. Not, Not the wasting of stuff, but the wasting of a life. That's what he's against. Did it ever occur to you that it's possible... To save things and waste life. It's possible. To save things and waste a life. And we're going to get into that. But there's another aspect of this that we read. He also shakes things up in regards to planning in the very same way. I mean, what's wrong with planning? I'm taught to plan. It's a smart idea to plan. God, are you against planning? In this text, James is going to let us know that planning for tomorrow just might ruin living for today. Consider that possibility, that with our planning, planning for tomorrow just might ruin living for today. So that's where James is headed with us, and we're going to get into it in a little bit. But let me stay, set the stage just a little bit more. James is actually speaking specifically to two groups of people. There's a the group of people in the end of James chapter 4, verses 13 to, the, to verse 17 that he's referring to, and these were people who were traders, wealthy traders on an international level. They weren't barterers in the street. There's references to them traveling uh, great distances with uh, significant quantities of monies they were they were traders they were in commerce and, and business and and they did it on an international scale uh, and then there was the land owning class that we read about in verse in chapter 5 verses 1 to 6 it's a, another group of people that were part of that congregation you have the traders business people and then you have the landowner class who had acquired or had inherited Great quantities of wealth and estate, actually. And the warning here is to both of them. The warning to those who were the traders is this. uh, Don't do the wrong things. Uh, They were warned against doing the thing wrong uh, with your planning and the way you live your life. But to the land-owning class, the warning was this. uh, It was a warning against doing nothing at all. One said, don't do the wrong things. And then the other one was, don't do anything at all and so that's the warning that we see here now there's one more trait there of these two groups of people that were part of that congregation and is that as they were longing to follow jesus i mean they were they were christians and and they they were part of a christian community and they desperately wanted to follow jesus and that marked them in unique ways. In spite of the fact that they were just like everyone else in regards to being traders, international traders, or being landowners, they were Christians as well. Rodney Stark, in his book, a fascinating book actually, called The Rise of Christianity, is a sociologist and he investigated what Christianity was like in those early days. He said that when Christianity came to Palestine and particularly to Europe... Uh, Christians introduced to the world, to a world characterized primarily by hatred and cruelty, a totally new concept about humanity. And it was this, that you had a responsibility to be compassionate and caring to everyone. The character of Christianity brought that into a culture of uh, self-concern And cruelty and hatred. No, there is this piece of what it means to be a Christian—to be part of compassion and caring for everyone. This is actually what caused the church to grow in such dramatic ways. It were those those Christians who, in the midst of horrendous plague, would actually, instead of fleeing from those who had who had uh, encountered the plague to actually go into their homes and to nurse them, some back to health, but many into their death. Christians were doing this because the character trait that was unique to them because that's what Jesus was like, and they were intent on being just like Jesus. And so huge numbers of people, Christians and non-Christians died. But there was this memory that was left over in the society and was, The memory of those Christians who acted just like Jesus would and went into those homes and with compassion and care sometimes gave their life alongside of those who were ill. And Stark says, and the church grew exponentially because the church was characterized by people who were just like Jesus. So here's the challenge for those people then and now. Now traders get on an airplane and they travel and they go to different places in the world and they do business and sounds like we're just like them or have stuff and estates and, and land we're the same kind of people who among us doesn't want to have our life characterized by this compassion and caring for the people around us, I don't even have to show, have a show, ask for a show of hands here. It's universal. As in, every single one of us say, "I want, as a follower of Jesus, my life to be characterized by compassion and care for everyone around me." The problem is, is that the stuff complicates it. The plans, the need to set schedules, and and achieve results, the need to manage stuff. It, it just complicates life. In fact, James says it endangers life. And so we see here in verse 13, this now listen, and it's an interesting word not used very often, and it's just kind of like one of these. Larry, I wonder if you might, uh, we, we, we just only met each other a couple months ago, but we're friends. Okay, so I can just, can you stand up for a minute? It's a little bit like this. It's kind of a lapel grabbing moment, and it's now now listen, now listen. You see, I got his attention right there. That's what that word is in the original text. It's just a lapel-grabbing moment. It says, now listen to this. And it's not a, a harsh thing because he's referred to them as brothers and sisters already, right? It's like you come up to your brother and you say, n- n- no, 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 you've got to listen to this. And that's the point that James is at in this text, in this letter that he's writing. It's one of those moments where he says, you know, I don't know if you've been listening so far, but right now, listen to this. And so we walk into it, and we start with the summation at the end. Let's start there, and it's, it's, um, it, it, you can understand why it was so important to listen, because the warning is there. He says, you fatten yourselves for the day of slaughter. I'm listening. You've got my attention. You realize this is not going to be an uplifting exhortation here. So let's walk through it and I want to just build on a sentence that I hope you can take with it with you that's consistent with the text and easy to remember. The first thing is is this this imperative to choose to live rather than to die, to choose to live. And this is chapter 5 verses 1 through 6 and he He gives this list of things that are death-like or leading to death. He talks, first of all, and you can just walk through it if you've got it in front of you, about your future miseries. He speaks about rotting riches, essentially a picture of barns that are filled with grain that spoil in storage. Moth-eaten garments, rusted precious metals. They're called precious metals, but they're all rusted now and, and decaying and corroded of fire-destroyed flesh, of laborers that are crying and weeping, of slaughtered hearts, of righteous people condemned. I mean, that's the list. Did you see it there? He goes from one to the next to the next. There are three things really here that die or that come to ruin. and This isn't new for James. He's talked about the path that leads to life and the path that leads to to death. Here we see the path that leads to death. Death for three, three groups. The first, the first that it leads to is the death of stuff. It dies. The, the precious metals are corroded. The cloth clothes are moth eaten. The wealth is rotted. The death of stuff we see here. But there's another uh, reality, and it's the death of one's life. If one chooses to invest, to save, to collect, to gather. It's actually the death of our life. And you can even see it here built into the language of this. There's an image of a life that becomes like the stuff, burning like fire, flesh burning like fire, just as the other things corrode, my life can corrode. It can die. That's what James is saying here. Your life is like your riches or can be. It can be rotted. It can be eaten away. It can be corroded. Therefore, the rust of them, the, riches, the rich are warned, shall be a witness against you. Watch what happens to the stuff that sits in one place and is saved and stored. What's happening to the stuff could possibly be a picture of, of what's happening to the character of your life. Thrown away, that stuff is, because it's insignificant. Do you want your life and everything you sought to achieve thrown away as insignificant? That's that's the metaphor, that's the picture that's being described here. And there's such irony here. We decide to keep stuff to preserve it, when that very action of keeping it or preserving it destroys. The more I hold on to it, to keep it, the better chance there is that it will be lost. The desire to possess has become here such a towering priority that it has overshadowed the nature or the design of life itself, the very intention of what was to be. I I am my storage unit and all of the stuff that I've collected there. It will bring me pleasure and happiness. Someday I'm going to turn the key and open it up and I'm going to derive pleasure from the stuff I'm storing right now. But that is it for me. That's where my hope is found. I'm saving it because later... It will bring what I want. I am my storage unit. And you say, well, that's kind of silly or absurd, but what is it that you have? Is it possible that in your life it has become you? The very thing you hang on to because you hope to derive pleasure or joy from it. And James is pointing out the absurdity of that kind of a choice. When we are invited to choose the path of life, which is a path of worship and appreciation and deriving ultimate joy and pleasure from the one who made us in our relationship with him. I can ruin my life by keeping my life and having my stuff be my life. And then there's a third loss here. There's a third thing that comes to ruin. It's not only the stuff, it's not only our life, but it's the lives of others as well. And we get to the end of this, these verses 1 through 6 in chapter 5, and you can see the devastation done to those who come alongside of us and we use to serve us to keep our stuff. And that we can actually, in our pursuit of that, do harm to them and use them and destroy them as well. So what is the necessary action for us in this in order to choose to live? It's this, to give God permission to replace pleasure as the center of my life with himself. To give God permission to replace pleasure at the center of my life with himself. God, don't let that be the sum total of the significance of my life. I want to choose life instead. A second aspect of this, and it is to choose to live today. So he goes from talking about those who are landholders, who hold things and have acquired stuff and hang on to it and try to build it up, to those who are actually planning because they want to acquire that kind of stuff. And and you'll notice here, James asks a couple of uh, just uh, uh, strong words in verse 13. He says, now listen. And look at what he says in verse 14. He says, what is your life? What, What is your life? What? What is it? What is your life? Well, I guess we do know what our life is. Our our life is where we are, who we are, right here and now, today. What is my life? It's today, it's right now. I have no certainty of anything more than that. I'm breathing right now. By God's grace, I am alive Today. And God tells us to live in this. This is the day that the Lord has made. Rejoice and be glad in it. And in, in right now, morning by morning, new mercies I see. I'm alive today. I woke up this morning to be a container that could hold the mercies of God. That is my life right now, today, as I breathe. And so James is saying to us to choose to live in the life you've been given today. And he rebukes those of us who have a tendency to, um, to think more about tomorrow than we do about today and think about t- tomorrow with no sense of God in those plans. He describes them as arrogance schemes, de- as presumptuous plans. There's a smug certainty in the text, theologians say, as they look at it. Uh, Nystrom says there's a self-contained certainty that James that God wants to rebuke a self-contained certainty i know what's best for me i i know my future just you watch me and when i make those plans and i live out into them and those plans succeed i then boast about them because they were mine if god actually does give me tomorrow i've made plans about those tomorrow those things tomorrow that I will boast about because I call them my own. And I did them on my own. That's what James is talking about. He says, don't get messed up by this. It's so much a part of the world we live in, but we are not that world. There is a warning here for those who arrange their lives as though God does not practically exist and as if they alone are masters of their destiny to shape today around what will be acquired tomorrow. And this planning here is characterized by a sin against humility. Be more humble than that. You have no control over whether you wake up tomorrow. Henry Nowen in a book called Creative Ministry talks actually about this very thing when he talks about our need to be characterized by celebration. And I want to read just a little bit to you. We live in a culture in which these words of Jesus, do not worry about tomorrow, tomorrow will take care of itself, sound beautiful and romantic, but completely unrealistic. We live in such a utilitarian society that even our most intimate moments have become subject to the question, what is the purpose of it for tomorrow? Today we don't just eat and drink. We have business lunches and fundraising dinners. We engage in things because of what they will achieve for us tomorrow. And he says this, and we always keep on believing that the real thing is going to happen tomorrow. We always keep on believing that the real thing is going to happen tomorrow. So what I do today is to get ready for, to plan for, to make sure that something real happens tomorrow. In this kind of life, the past is degenerated into a series of used or misused opportunities, the present into a constant concern about accomplishments, and the future into a make-believe paradise where we hope to finally receive what we always wanted to receive. A life like this, Nouwen says, cannot be celebrated because we're constantly concerned with changing it into something else, always trying to do something to it to get something out of it that it might fit into plans and projects for tomorrow. And James says, foolish, foolish thinking. Choose to live today in this moment what the moment provides because God's mercies are new every morning and i just have a brand new morning to live a day out of what's the necessary action here to trust in god's graciousness to rather than my human plans i i will make plans but they will be held with an open hand because i don't know what tomorrow is but i know god has been gracious in today and i will live that out and you perhaps know how challenging this is because there's always something to do to get ready for tomorrow. remember particularly when I was a young dad and, and there was something to do to get ready for tomorrow. And, and uh, Beth would put a children's book in my hand and say, read to your girls. I'd walk in the room, open the book, and enjoy today to live in the moment what is around you right now that god has given you to enjoy life choose to live today in the riches that come from an investment now and an engagement in it there's one more aspect to it and is to choose to live today in his will it says in verse 15 instead you ought to say if it is the Lord's will we will live and we will do this or that there's a humility in this to be able to say God what is it that you will what is it you have and there's a guidance and direction that's set by knowing what values he has. This, this uh, following his will is, is not that we will simply act because by his grace we are still alive to do so, but we will act today in a particular way because by his grace we are still alive to do his will. We say, whatever the Lord may will, and and then we figure it out. God, what what would your will be in this moment in time? In the last verse of chapter 4, it says, well, it is the good that we ought to do. It's interesting that in Matthew 25, when they're sifting out of the sheeps and the goats and they're divided into categories, the distinguishing characteristic of the one over the other isn't that one has been characterized by egregious sin and wrongdoing and the other is not. It's that one group of people have been characterized by living a life of compassion and care for the world around them. If you don't do the good you ought to do, It is sin for them. God has called us to a life that would make an impact on those around us. Calvin, John Calvin said this, God has not appointed gold for rust or garments for moth, but on the contrary, he has designed them as aids to human life. What will I be sure to utilize today for his will and his purposes? What do I have that I can use in today that brings glory to him and joy to me. You know, Beth and I have been challenged with this whole issue of simplifying our lives and wanting to do that. And what does it mean for us to be able to live that out? Have you ever realized how easy it is to collect things? You know, to to just accumulate. And And we start to accumulate these things, don't we? We accumulate the things that we needed to raise the kids, right? Some of you might be right in the middle of that. Glad that's over, actually. But there's all of this stuff, and it seems like there's always more stuff that you need to have in order to take care of your kids or to love them. And so you just keep adding this stuff to your stuff. And you know what we notice? We notice that when the kids are grown, they don't want to take it with them. <laughs> so there it sits. It, there, there it is right there. And then there's the, there are the things that are filled, they're filled with meaning and, and memories. There's that chair that my dad made. Oh, it means so much to me to have it. And then there's this stuff that's added to our stuff to complement our stuff, right? So we buy, we build that deck, and to complement the deck, we need a grill. And then a fire pit would look nice to complement the grill. And, and, then, and then there's the furniture that would look nice as a complement to that. And, the, and, and, and there are the lights, and we just keep adding stuff to complement the stuff we've got, Right? And you know then there are those things like those christmas house collections the word collection ought to be a red flashing light <laughs> collection did you hear that and you know this that uh, a collection is never done being collected right and, and so and so and so this stuff it just accumulates along the way and then there's that stuff that might be used again you never know it might be used again Beth was looking at a tea set that she had with the kids and there oh our memories of of tea parties that Beth would have with our girls we've got to, we've got to keep that because who knows this week Beth looked at me she says you know I'm keeping this and I don't even know if we'll have granddaughters but we might it's just this it's just a tendency, right? And in our desire to be able to simplify our lives somewhat, somewhat, some you know, we did we took a bunch of that stuff and we put it in a box truck, and um, we sent it to Adelante Thrift, and it was just packed full of stuff. And I, I said to Beth when it was in there, "Do you realize what's in this? She said, I don't want to know. <laughs> All I know is we don't need it." And so, there it went. I'm driving down to Adelante Thrift, and Beth texts me, and she says, I feel so free right now. (sighs) You know what my guess is? Who knows? This week, there might be a mom and a couple of little girls in Kansas City, Kansas, having a tea party. Or it could have been in our basement still. Do you see the invitation that God is giving us? Consider the freedom of less. Consider the freedom of living today for today. Consider the freedom of enriching the lives of others, consider the freedom of living like Jesus did and invites us to. Now, I'm not prescribing anything, and I don't have a box truck you can borrow. (laughs) But I do have a couple of questions that I would invite you to walk away with. All summarized under this overarching question that James asks. As I grab your lapel... And I ask you, what is your life? What is your life? The first question is this. What are the things in your life that you have felt the need to keep that are actually keeping you now? What are you keeping that might actually be keeping you keeping you from generosity, keeping you from concern for others, keeping you from living with time to spare because there's less stuff to manage. I thought I was keeping it. I've realized now it's actually keeping me. And the second question is this. What day is it? In your head... Right now, what day is it? Has tomorrow's anxiety gripped you and you're living there already? Has tomorrow's concerns so become a focus that you're already there? What day is it in your head right now God wants it to be today. Today. In a couple of weeks, the first week of Advent after Thanksgiving, we're going to shut down as much as we can around here at church. And uh, any groups that meet, if small groups continue meeting, and some of yours might, we're going to just say, "You know what? Take some time to just pray, to listen to God." We're going to have a place where you can reserve the prayer room if you want to, but we're going to just spend a week at the beginning of Advent to have opportunities for us, for God to speak into our lives about these kinds of things. These questions might be something we wrestle. God, how do I live today? What's the stuff that's keeping me? God, tell me what it means to live my life today, in the center of your will. And I trust that God will guide us as he does that. I also trust that as we leave here today, that God will allow you to walk into a week filled with worship centered around this question, what is my life? Would you pray with me, please? Oh, dear Father, thank you for lapel-grabbing moments where you encourage us to walk into a life that is richer than the one we thought we had and could only have. but I pray that you would speak now to us as we conclude our time together here and prepare for the day that's left that you've given to us to live. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.